1: Live from the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lear. Traders on the desk are Tim Seymour, Brian Kelly, and Guy Adami. Also joining us tonight is Chris Verone, head of technical analysis at Strategic Research Partners. On the big show tonight, funds wraps Tom Lee on why the markets needs Bitcoin to go up, not down. He will explain. Then Walmart goes big to go to your home $98 all you can order grocery delivery goes national the desk will chow down on that Plus, oh. blackstone has been a shining gem recently up another four percent today but 75 percent year to date doesn't have more room to run before losing its luster we'll debate that but first ice ice baby Ice. is that the federal reserve is that what it's feeling right now <laughs> Under it should be under pressure uh, <laughs> the No, it's not the highest. It no, <laughs> It'll come. <laughs> Between the ECB relaunching open-ended monetary easing this morning and the president's tweets urging the "quote unquote" boneheads of the Fed to cut rates, does the Fed have no choice but to move in that direction, Guy?
2: I hope that's not the case. You know, I hope they. You know, back in October, Jerome Powell, when he first started this job, he said, "We we are going to do what's right." for the United States and for the economy. And I really felt that he was on the right track. It was going to raise rates in a systematic way. It was going to reduce the balance sheet. And that was the right thing to do, in my opinion. I still think that was the right thing to do. He obviously did a complete 180. But are they under pressure to do this? I mean, you saw the core CPI today. I you know Tim and I were talking about it. We tweeted about it. Hot, hottest number in 11 years. I mean, I don't understand why, with inflation rising, without question, and with the greatest economy in the history of the republic, The president's words, not mine, we have to do some rate cut that is effectively would be a emergency measure in a situation that's when there's no emergency. So I don't think they should be. Now, do they feel pressure to? Well, you listen to the president. Absolutely. And it's funny. Quickly, the president talked about the Europeans. Uh. Manipulizing or, or currency manipulating, you know, he talked about them as they were geniuses to do it. Yet when the Chinese do it, it's some evil empire thing. You can't have it both ways.
3: Well, it didn't work for them today either, right? The euro was much stronger today. Dollar was much weaker. Here's the problem that the Fed has in relation to the stock market, equities and the U.S. economy, is that the more that the European central banks and other central banks around the world the more likely our yield curve is to invert. That creates talk about recession. That creates a problem for the banks. So whether they want to or not, with the rest of the world cutting rates, particularly in the negative territory, U.S. rates still positive, you can get this yield curve of inversion, which they don't want to have. CPI, they actually hit the number for the first time in 10 years. Seems like that's working. We've got good employment. So they're hitting both their mandates, but now they've got this potential for an inverted yield curve.
4: I just can't remember a time where the divide between perception and reality has been as wide as it presently is. Think about the things we've worried about this year, whether it's trade or Brexit or China, and the market hasn't flinched. There have been these signs of cyclicality really all summer. Semis outperforming software. We've started to see it recently the last couple of weeks. Industrials catching a bid. Banks actually better. So I think the message of the market is, hey, things are actually pretty good uh, underneath here. And I would be very careful
5: getting too bearish here. Right. So maybe, you know, perception is reality. And and I think you have a dynamic here where, um, you know, we probably say this a lot, but again, I hate hyperbole. Another extraordinary day. If you think about the ECB steps in, uh, was, was potentially, look, expectations were high. They were very aggressive. Uh, they've thrown a lot of stimulus, and they basically said they're going to be patient, and they're going to do, It's similar to the old, we'll do what, we'll do what needs to be done. Um, you have a dynamic where Bunds, 10-year BUNS, dropped eight basis points. Then by the end of the, the session, they were actually back up and even stronger. Uh, you combine that with the fact that uh, the BOJ is saying they're actually getting worried about long-term interest rates falling. If you combine that with a Fed that we don't know is necessarily going to move as quickly as people think. You combine that with also a deficit over a trillion. You have major issuance going on. And suddenly it looks like bond yields are going higher. And and suddenly, if you look at the reversal we've had, at least, um, and and Marco was on yesterday talking about some of the technical factors, um, it it was a very important day for markets. And and it's on some level very good for risk. It's very good for these reflation trades. It's apparently very good for gold, which I thought was trading mostly on deflation. But clearly gold rallied on the sense that there was this 2.4 percent core inflation.
1: Hedge yeah. for inflation, hedge for deflation. I mean, so it's, whatever you want, it's, it's a, a cure-all. It's, it's a, your cure-all asset class. Right.
2: Yeah. it's interesting. I mean, you know, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. The banks have traded well in this environment. We, you know, Tim brought this up, and we brought it up a week and a half, two weeks ago. You know, the bond market absolutely got ahead of itself, and we talked about it that day. I think it was a Tuesday, two weeks or so ago. And quite frankly, that proved to be correct. Name like Citibank has rallied thirteen percent, I think, in six trading sessions. That's pretty interesting. And I think there's further room, but I do still think the banks are in this longer-term downtrend. So take advantage of it while you can. And 180 in the 10-year give or take has been a level that a lot of people flagged for the retracement back to. In other words, bonds selling off, yields going higher. We'll see how it reacts tomorrow. It's going to be fascinating to see what our bond market does tomorrow given some of the rhetoric we're probably going to hear.
3: Although with all of this said, if you told me two weeks ago we would have had a weaker dollar, we would have had the ECB cutting rates and multiple others cutting rates, and we would have some kind of movement maybe on trade, I would have thought the stock market would be at all-time highs. Just up, you know, Dow up three, 400 points. I know we've priced a lot and we've anticipated a lot of this, but I was actually a little we disappointed are. with the trading like at the end of the day. I mean, we're effectively here, Brian. Brian. Yeah, but I'm talking I mean, about the trading today, right? All this news came out today. So when there's good news and bad price action, I get concerned. And the fade today, I thought we would have had a lot more. Because I'm
4: reluctant to call price action bad today. If we look at the breadth over the last two weeks it's as good as we've seen since coming up the lows seven eight months ago and i think what tim talks about and you're right when you look at long yen long gold long german boots that's been the same trade all summer that's on it's not a new trade look at the bellwethers in this market apple 52 week high jp morgan 52 week high alibaba right there taiwan semi right there i mean these are the messages of the market that say hey things really aren't so bad here
1: So you think that the writing's on the wall for new highs on the S&P 500 and beyond? I think the
4: writing's on the wall for decisive new S&P highs as we move through the end of the year.
1: What's decisive?
4: 3150, 3200. Okay.
5: What's also decisive for markets is that the the riskiest markets are actually rallying. So emerging markets haven't been this overbought on a nine day RSI. Whatever that means is that could get that could get worked off pretty quickly. I'm just telling you that the momentum behind this trade is as good as we've seen since the blow off top of Jan 2018. You want to see emerging markets and you've seen their currencies rally dramatically. That's another part of the risk spectrum. So um, for me, it's hard to see where this changes overnight unless you get a really bad trade headline.
1: All right. Our next guest's uh, take is basically it's time for the Fed to be proactive and leading. Let's bring in Jim Karen, the Global Fixed Income Portfolio Manager at Morgan Stanley. Jim, welcome. Great to have you here. you here. What do you mean it's not? It is a central bank of the world, isn't <clears throat> it? So isn't it by default the leading central bank?
6: It's supposed to be. So let's put what the ECB did today into context, right? So they're talking about 20 million, 20 billion, sorry, of QE per month until they start hiking rates again. If you look at the forward markets, what that tells you is that the, that the ECB is not expected to hike for another six years. So if you do $20 billion a month for Sounds six like trillion years, dollars or more, it's over tr- a trillion dollars of quantitative easing. What is the Fed doing? They're still talking about the Phillips curve. They can't quite decide in terms of what they want to do with rates. Do they cut 25? Do they not? And I think this is what I mean about the, the Fed is actually lagging behind. The more the Fed lags, the more the market will price in, that they're going to have to do more later. Because I, and I understand the topics that were being discussed here. You know, CPI is, is higher, so why do we care? We care because the Fed is looking at core PCE. Core PCE is only at 1.7%. If you start, and that's below their target of 2%. If you start to embed disinflationary or deflationary expectations into the economy, you end up with a Japan-like situation, and they've been trying to dig themselves out of that hole for over 25 years. So I think the Fed is trying very, very hard not to get there. The ECB has certainly got the message, and they're doing it very proactively. The more the ECB does, that means the dollar will probably get stronger because interest rate differentials, rates will go down in Europe, and rates won't necessarily go down so much in the U.S. I do think this puts pressure on the Fed to do more.
1: So what does the Fed need to do to be proactive?
6: Well, I, I think that there are two criteria that will define success for them. They need to steepen the yield curve. They need to weaken the dollar. Now, that probably comes with a rate cut. How aggressive and how much becomes the next question. So I would expect the Fed to cut two more times this year and probably at least another two times going into, in, into next year. So I would expect about 100 basis points more of cuts. Now, if we start, and that's what, and that's what the market is uh, pricing in right now. If we, if the Fed actually does deliver that and this, and we are starting to get some recovery in the economic data, then what they're gonna, what the Fed is gonna start to show us is that now they're starting to get ahead of the curve, they're starting to become more proactive. They're gonna rebuild inflation expectation, rebuild term premium to the curve, re-steepen the yield curve. And I think on a relative basis, when we look at the dollar relative to other currencies, the dollar may actually start to weaken or at least not rally as much. And I think that's a key. Jim, 10-year yields peaked almost a year ago, 326.
4: So right. we're anniversarying a year of lower interest rates. Does the stimulative
6: effect to that start to show up in the data? I mean, it does, but also the fiscal benefits from the tax cuts that we've had for a while is also starting to fade. So, yes, you are getting a decline in interest rates, which should start to help, but also the fiscal stimulus that we had from the tax cuts you know, from two years ago, a year and a half ago, is also starting to fade. What's more important, I think, is that when we look at the forward, you know, aspects of the economy, when we look at trade, when we look at China, what is the potential for weakness? Now, I I agree with what's being said where, you know, does the Fed really have to be aggressive in this economy? Look at where the stock market is. I think that's a little bit the wrong question. I think the question is, is how much insurance does the Fed need to take out so that the U.S. economy doesn't turn into a Japanese-like economy where they have perpetual disinflation and deflation? If it were me, the risk-reward is, you know what, let's do a little bit too much. If the stock market goes up a lot, you know what, we know how to fix that. We can actually hike rates pretty aggressively, and we'll turn that around fast. But we can't fix it the other way if, if, if inflation expectations go down for too long.
5: But, but Jim, you, you can't fix it the other way once you've gone too far as well. So there's this fear that we have so many bullets, et cetera. And I think it's, I mean, I think it's, First of all, very interesting, and it's not, it's not a, a thought that's out there, but the, the fact that the ECB could be leading the Fed here is an extraordinary concept because it's the tail on the dog. The ecb 's always been that tail.
6: Right, and, and, you know, and, and I, I understand the worries of bubbles and inflation, inflation expectations. The thing is, I, I don't see an inflation problem in the world. And, and if I did, then I would say the Fed needs to tread very, very carefully. As far as bubbles go, look, I, 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 don't, I think bonds are acting perfectly reasonable relative to what central banks are doing. I think, no, I'm not an equity analyst and I, I don't invest in equities, but I would say that equity markets are probably reacting properly relative to low interest rates. So I, I don't necessarily see things as frothy and as a bubble. I don't see a lot of leverage that's a problem. Now, leverage, corporate leverage is high, but what we also have to remember is at the term of that leverage, so in other words, uh, many corporations have termed out their debt. They've refinanced for longer-term debt, and their cost of borrowing is really, really low. So even though leverage is high, and people like to you know, like to highlight that, the cost of servicing it, exactly, is really, really low. So I don't see this as a, as a, as a pressure point. So this, to me, gives the Fed a lot of room to be very accommodative, at least try to keep up a little bit with the ECB. And if it turns out that the ECB is doing the wrong thing right now, the Fed can reverse and they can go the other way. Easily fixed.
3: So Jim, of of all the asset classes out there, you don't necessarily see frothiness in equities. Commodities are certainly not frothy, but the bond market might be called frothy. Other people have called it a bubble. Your are fixed income portfolio manager. Do you think it's a bubble? And if so, how are you handling that?
6: I, I don't think it's a bubble. Um, and I do think that there are really good pockets of, of opportunities, and particularly in emerging market local bonds, so local currency, EM debt. A lot of these bond markets really haven't rallied relative to, say, what the equity markets are doing or even what the investment grade markets are doing. They're lagging behind. and What we want to do is we want to find pockets of places that really haven't participated in this. Now, many emerging markets, they have steep yield curves. They have higher interest rates. Their central banks have plenty of scope to cut rates. They have very positive real interest rates. That's where the money is going to start to gravitate towards. One prerequisite, you have to have some semblance of calm between the U.S. and China. If, if the U.S. and China are continuing to battle, EM is going to sit in the backseat. If that calms down, and I think it will for the, for the remaining part of the year and maybe even a little bit into next year, then the money is going to start to chase the assets that haven't appreciated yet. So emerging markets is one of those places, and I'll give you another outlier pick. I would say in the high-yield space, some of the energy sector, which has absolutely gotten destroyed, you get some calm, Energy starts to do a lot better. Plus, if people do start to move back into high yield, for example, they'll buy the ETFs. By default, they're buying the energy sector, and they're going to take that sector higher. That's a contrarian call right now. It's risky, but I think it could be worthwhile.
1: Jim, great to see you. Thank you. Thank you. Karen, Morgan Stanley what do you think?
2: Makes great points. You know, I, listen, I, it's hard for me to argue that he's not 100% correct. I guess my point is this. Just because everybody else is doing it doesn't mean you should do it. Quick example. The big thing now is you hold your kid back for a year, you give him or her competitive advantage. But if everybody does that, There's you're no right advantage. back at square one. So at what point does that stop? And you're shaving I, in second grade. And <laughs> you know what? We're not that far from that. So right. I guess my point is if all the central banks are doing it, we all get there, then... At what point is it just madness and it has to stop? By, almost by definition, I think... There has to be some negative ramifications for the recklessness of global central banks. Just my opinion.
1: The challenge of of targeting a steeper yield curve also is does the Fed actually have control over the yield curve with a blunt instrument like cutting rates?
2: Right. Exactly. I mean,
3: the the one thing they do have is their balance sheet, where they actually can do like a reverse operation twist. I've talked about (laughs) that before. But basically, the idea is they have more control over the the yield curve than they have in the past. The one thing I would say, the call on high yield is kind of interesting. Mm particularly for U.S. bank stocks, because one thing we always get concerned about when oil goes down so much is how much exposure do U.S. banks have to the oil patch. So if that's going to get better, that actually might put a bid under bank stocks as well.
1: All right. Coming up, Walmart ramping up the grocery wars. We'll tell you what that could mean for the consumer. Plus, Bitcoin struggling to break out, but strips Tom Lee says there is one catalyst that could finally help the crypto catch a break. We're live from Times Square in New York City. Much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a news alert on WeWork. Let's get to Deidre Bosa in San Francisco for the details. Deidre.
0: Hey, Melissa, WeWork is considering curbing founder and CEO Adam Newman's voting power to save the IPO. This is according to a Financial Times report citing sources earlier this week, our own Leslie Picker reporting that WeWork was considering making some corporate governance changes and that they could come as early as this week. Now, among the changes being discussed, according to the FT report, would be revising Newman's super voting rights, which give him 20 times the voting power. Also, potentially, the role of his wife, Rebecca Newman. Currently, she is the company's chief brand and impact officer. And under the current guidelines, the current policy, she will be able to pick his successor if he dies or if he is permanently disabled in the 10 years following the IPO alongside two company board members. Uh, So, Melissa, already this was a highly unusual S-1. We've heard lots about it and we know that the IPO is struggling to get off the ground and there's a tug of war going on. So these changes potentially could help push the IPO forward if they do. Go ahead. Back to you.
1: This sounds effectively, Deidre, like they would have to eliminate the three class uh, share system that they have right now.
0: Well, we only know right now that it would be revising Adam Newman's role. So perhaps it is giving him less control. I'm not sure if it would be taking away those Class C entirely. um, But certainly it's evident that um, there's some changes that probably need to happen before they reach an IPO, given what the market and privately is happening.
1: Deidre, thank you. Deidre Bosa in uh, San Francisco with the latest on WeWork. Is that going to be enough curbing (laughs) his voting power when he has practically a supermajority of shares? By this three-class voting share structure. And but I but let's just think it. about
4: what this story is emblematic of. Where's the excess in the world right now? Is it in the private markets or is it the public markets? Private. Right, right? And you see the way that these IPOs this year have acted. It's been terrible. The public markets are on strike when it comes to owning these things. And I think that should it almost be reassuring as an equity investor right now that there's not the degree of excess often present in
3: your tops.
1: Where, just, where it would just where, go and it would just... Yeah, yeah I mean, at most, at most There's tops, pushback.
3: companies like this, they would have gone and they would have gone up 20% on yeah. the first day. Sure. And what are we seeing now? We're seeing people selling out of them at 20% losses. So- To me, and I'm speculating a bit here, but it sounds like you probably have some early investors in WeWork that want liquidity and need to get out. You have SoftBank who did the last round at almost double the valuation of what it is here today. And so there's some wrangling behind the scenes to try to get that liquidity because venture capitalists, to raise their next fund, need that liquidity, need to move on. So I think that's what's going on here. Even still, I don't think it's going to be a great IPO if we use the other IPOs as a proxy. Well, you're
1: specifically referring to, I think, Smile Direct Club. which went, which, raised, so its, which raised its pr- crown direct. Mm-hmm. It was today, today. Yeah. down 27 percent on its uh, debut day, even though it raised its. It cra- yeah, it's you're smiling. It's, no, I'm, like, so, <laughs> I'm
2: not. I'm smiling. We had a whole conversation about it before the show. It should. I don't. Know, we should have
1: traded a lot better. It Should
2: trade a lot better, and we sort of. We didn't speak to this type of move today, but we spoke to you know buyer beware and quickly. I mean BK is being nice. I think SoftBank it was a $48 billion valuation there last round, yeah. and this thing is somewhere between 14 and 18, which is far more than twice. And, and again, I, they should be beholden, in my opinion, to the to, to the concerns of SoftBank. Yes, but. We're going to find out what happens. All right.
1: From WeWork to Walmart, the world's biggest retailer announcing today it will be expanding its grocery delivery service. Walmart introducing a new unlimited option where customers can pay a monthly or yearly fee to receive unlimited deliveries to their homes. And this comes as fellow retail chain Kroger closes out a wild day of swings after raising doubts about its profit targets, even after beating earnings expectations this morning. So two different headlines. It does say, though, the consumer grocery wars. Are on Tim? They are.
5: They are in, in, in certainly in the big box space, yeah. and the the competition between Walmart, Target, Kroger, uh, and a few European Aldi, you know, Lidl, all these guys that have come into uh, a very very competitive space. Where Walmart still dominates the ability to control prices. So for Walmart shareholders, the question is really, uh, your top line is going to look pretty good. The question is, is this company going to continue to actually have the surprise on the EPS, which is what they had done? Um, I, I look. I've been wrong on Walmart for the last 30 percent. So my view is Walmart is is. Is a very expensive stock here that was a function of a market if you believe the markets in this uh we're, we're worried about growth we're going to defensive names walmart will outperform but right now it is so competitive in that space i don't know why you want to be owning something with no margin
4: i'm going to push back on that you know walmart's a stock that basically has been unchanged for the better part of the last 18 months it is just starting to break out of the space Add it to the list of recent breakouts right so when we think about this is it a good pair versus Amazon? Right? Is this starting to take share from that side of the trade? I think you can be long here. 115, 116 is
2: good support. I'd be a buyer. It's hard to argue with that because it has traded extraordinarily well. I'm sort of with Tim. But when you're talking about a company with 4% earnings growth, EPS growth-ish, trading at 23 times when historically it's somewhere between 18 and a half, 19 times, you have to say that the stock is expensive, especially with this competitive landscape. So I under look. The stock has been great over the last couple months, without question. But at a certain point, I do believe that valuation matters, and I think we're getting close.
3: Yeah, we're getting close. I wouldn't buy Walmart on this news. I mean, with the with the competitive landscape, it's much better to be the grocer than the grocer. And so these what? are the grocers. Yeah, the, the grocer, the one who gets the groceries. Oh,
1: you're the consumer. The consumer, yeah. Grocery. You know, like services. a renter and a rentee. that type of
3: lessee, lessee, yeah, e, see, less less more, less I'd I'd much rather be a grossie. It's great for the grossies
2: of the world. Exactly. Terrible for the grossies. Oh, I don't want my groceries. I'm just putting it out there. Really? I go to the local Acme, and I pick out my avocados, and I feel my tomatoes and make sure they're okay. I mean, you feel your
5: tomatoes. Hold on.
2: I go, and when I'm buying a tomato, I pick it up. I want to see if it's bruised or something. I don't want it. Somebody... Thank you. Somebody else you might not have that kind too, of level of... Right? You might be bruising the tomatoes yourself. No, I don't bruise the tomatoes, I, to Tim. I know to how them. to pick yeah. up the tomatoes.
1: I'd, Make sure they're firm.
2: I don't know. I'd
5: stay away from his I tomatoes.
1: <laughs> For more of the grocery wars, head on over to CNBC.com. I'm Melissa Lee. You're watching Fast Money on CNBC. Here's what else is coming up on the show.
5: Why
3: Bitcoin needs the markets to go up. strats Tom Lee explains. Plus, topping the tape, Blackstone has been a gemstone. But could it soon lose its luster? Much more Fast Money after this break.
7: You seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours
0: today. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.
1: Welcome back to Fast Money Stocks. Climbing today and hovering near record highs. And Chris Verone is eyeing three names he says are key levels month to date. They are. Faded.
2: Faded. They jumped you, Mel. They wow. totally wow. jumped you.
1: Well, I, that gave it away. We're going to play trader today. Let's fade, do that. Right? We're going to do that. Nice job. And uh, because Chris is our special guest trader today, we thought we'd let him lead it uh, and, <laughs> and break down what he sees in the charts. So your first chart, Chris, is JP Morgan.
4: JP Morgan, yeah, I think this is one of the most important names in this market. Let's just keep in perspective where we are right back at the old highs near 120. This is the fifth time over the last 18 months that we've tested these levels. I think you want to trade this. I think this is on the verge of a breakout. I think what's been underappreciated is two or three weeks ago, they had this thing on the ropes. The referee should have stopped the fight, and it came right back. Sometimes when a bearish chart doesn't go down, it's the most bullish thing out there. We think JP Morgan higher. I'm trading
1: it. Trading J.P. Morgan. BK, what do you say? Yeah, I actually, I
3: like this. Now, it's going to come down to time frame, like both things, right? So longer term time frame, I think the breakout here, if we get a steeple yield curve, what was happening with the European banks today was fantastic. Relatively short term, you might want to wait for a little bit of pullback, and I'm talking short term next couple weeks. But for a breakout above 120, I I trade this.
1: Karen was just selling calls yeah, to J.P. Morgan yesterday, despite she, her love for she, Jamie Dimon. And who
2: loves Jamie Diamond more? more than Karen no, Feynman? No, Mrs. Diamond. I You know what? I might even challenge that. <laughs> With that said, I'll, I'll go the faded route. And for the exact reasons that Chris and BK just said, 118.5, 119. That was a high back in March of 2018. We've traded down, traded back up, traded down. Who's to say it's not going to happen again? I just think we're mired in this range. I'd rather fade it here.
5: I'm trading it, trading it all day long. Everything we talked about in the A block is bank positive. It's certainly money center bank positive, and J.P. Morgan is best of breed, which it actually underperforms Citibank and and even Bank of America, which would I rather own at this point? Certainly J.P. Morgan.
1: All right, Chris, what's the next name? We're
4: talking about Boeing, uh, largest weight in the industrials, another name that has spent the better part of the last 18 months in and around this 375 range. I think what's gone underappreciated over the last couple days, six-month high on Boeing, largest weight in the industrial sector making six-month highs, I think you want to trade it. I think you're going to challenge the old highs from the middle part of last year. And I think ultimately Boeing probably makes out and makes uh, a new high here.
1: All right. Boeing makes new high. Tim, what do you say?
5: Uh, I trade it. I trade it along with Chris. I I think the the news flow here, largely, first of all, the 777 news, the bridge, the X, you know, I I don't think that that's material. It certainly is about the 737 max getting back. It's about production. Do they have to cut the production line? That would be detrimental. Uh, It's still a free cash flow story. Uh, I think the resilience of the stock here is very impressive.
1: Buyer. Are you with Chris or are you against
2: Chris? No, no, no. It's not about being with or against. It's not about being traded or faded. And I, or fade I hear up. what Tim is saying. But you know what? Th- this has now gone on for the last eight or nine months. You have the China thing hanging over your head. If you think China deal is going to happen and you buy bone with both hands, I don't. So I say, faded. Took you a second there. No, yeah. it didn't. It was- I was waiting for them to run the graphic. And they did it simultaneously. Well, it, it kept me on the edge of my seat. I'll tell you that, that was, much.
3: Woof. BK? Yeah. Nerve-wracking. I'm going to start right off with a fade-in, because I don't want to get into that. So uh, the reason why I don't like it here is because everything we've anticipated all of this, right? The price has already run up. So let's call against $400, and you have to use some pretty wide ranges here. But $400, to me, looks like pretty good resistance. And I'm not a technician, but I might even call it a head and shoulder for it. I don't
1: know if Chris would, but... He uh, didn't. So, so, I mean, mean, (laughs) just to be clear. And I'm not putting words in his mouth, but if he wants to call it... But it sounds like you're against him. uh, Anyway... XOM, Chris, what do you see?
4: Yeah, last one here. And there's a big difference between ExxonMobil and the first two that we showed. This is a series of lower highs, lower high, lower high, lower high. Look at the slope of the 200 day moving average. Still down. I think this can rally probably back to the 74, 75 range. I want to fade it up there. This is still a downtrend. <laughs> Oil, frankly, does not act that well either. There's two very distinct pictures here. This is a weaker chart.
3: Ekes. Yeah, oil acts terrible. I'm a fader of this one as well. I'm within. There's, there's nothing about this chart that makes me want to go out and buy it. It's just ugly,
5: uh, so fade it. Can I guess what guy's gonna do? Go ahead, try to guess. All right. I'm gonna get you're gonna trade it. You're
3: one hundred percent right. I, I am gonna you know, trade it. I know, I know we got time coming up. He's, he's, he's
2: in my head. But we've seen significant bounces over the last three and a half, four years in Exxon Mobil that have wound up being fades. But you know what? I think it's still got another 9 10 percent to the upside. So I trade it. Instead of faded, Melms.
1: All right. Well, let's uh, pivot to Bitcoin here. It's been on a wild ride this year. Up 170% as investors use digital currency as a hedge against global risk. But with Bitcoin losing steam in the last few months, down almost 12% since its peak in June, what's a catalyst for the next leg higher? Let's check in with none other than Tom Lee, co-founder and head of research at Fundstrat Global Advisors, who joins us um, from a conference here in New York City. Tom, great to have you with us.
7: Yeah, good to see you guys.
1: What um, will we'll take it higher at this point?
7: Um Well, you know, I think that there have been tailwinds building for Bitcoin. you know one has been obviously you know sort of institutional money potentially coming in through things like backed and uh, programs like libra but and the technicals have been better, but I think Bitcoin has kind of stalled recently because the macro outlook is stalled. I think in a world without trend, bitcoin doesn 't go up, so I think the next big catalyst is. I think is a decisive breakout in the equity markets because I think once equities break to an all-time high, Bitcoin becomes a risk on asset.
1: So you need the equity markets to hit an all-time high for Bitcoin to hit all-time highs.
7: Yes. In fact, we published a piece today just showing our clients that if you look at the, the, you know, in the last 10 years and take the three or four best years of the S&P, They've all coincided with the best years for Bitcoin. So Bitcoin does best when the s and is up more than 15%.
1: So this whole notion of, of Bitcoin being a hedge JP, against risk, does that go out the window then? Because presumably, I mean, I guess you can go either way because we've, we've climbed to record highs despite risk at this point. But at some point, risk could catch up with the markets and
7: well, yeah, or, or Bitcoin may be ambidextrous, you know, that it works oh. well in a risk on world, but uh, as you start to get nervous, then you treat it like digital gold. What we had in the summer was neither environment. It was a market that looked like it was on the precipice. It looked like it could fall, but it never did. And I think stuck in that trend was bad for Bitcoin.
1: Okay, so if markets go to record highs, where does that bring Bitcoin to?
7: Well, I think that this... Starts to sort of bring back into the narrative that if markets make a new all-time high, and we see central banks still supportive, it's kind of good for liquidity. So there's sort of liquidity going into Bitcoin, and more importantly, if there's a, 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 an interest in, in acquiring some volatility, that's where you're going to p- see people buying Bitcoin.
1: Is your prediction that the markets will in fact go to record highs?
7: I think that we're inching closer. So our base case has been for a second half rallying the S and P 500 to greater than 3125 um all-time high is around 3025 i think we're gonna surpass that soon and it would be bullish for bitcoin so tom
3: it's an interesting concept and we've seen a lot of macro funds starting to use bitcoin as that hedge in 2017 though when the you the stock markets hit new highs the altcoins rallied so is it more potential that the altcoins rally than bitcoin
7: or is this a bitcoin centric rally um it's, and it's kind of come through in the conference. You know, I think there's a bit of sobering around all It's just more in that some are useful. They're not really sure how to trade the whole group. So I, I think what may, may, what may end up playing out is S&P hits an all-time high. Bitcoin reaches an all-time high, which is not too far away for Bitcoin. And then I think it, it would likely lead to the start of alt season. So I think you'd want to see an all-time high in Bitcoin.
1: Tom, thanks for joining us. To Great.
7: Thanks for having me. Tom Lee
1: me. A Fun Strat. How are the charts look? Do you see an all-time high for Bitcoin? The chart's
4: good, and I want to hit on something Tom said. Yeah. I, I don't think Bitcoin's about risk-off. Bitcoin's about liquidity. And in an environment where money is ample and rates are low, you see liquidity expressions in equities, and I think you see it in Bitcoin. I would expect a new high here. Whether it, it goes to 20000 I don't know. It's consolidated here in a bull's fashion. It's above an upward sloping 200-day moving average. I like it as an expression of liquidity.
2: Yeah. I listened to Brian Kelly with laser focused. And recently he said there might be one move to the downside, maybe 8,500. And what he said, and I'm going to say this carefully, a generational buying opportunity. That's right. i uh, stand by that. I think
3: you're going to have a massive buying opportunity here. We may have already seen it in the 9,000. So yeah, I might be trying to be too cute with this, but there's too much money coming into this market. You're going to have an opportunity to have a generational buy in Bitcoin sometime, I would say in the next six months.
1: All right. Coming up, Blackstone up 75% year-to-date, but how much further can this stone roll? Plus, the chairman of Aurora Cannabis speaking earlier today on CNBC will tell you what he had to say about the state of the company's capital needs. Much more Fast Money right after this. Check out shares of Blackstone. Topping the tape today, the private equity giant up more than 4% today. Now up more than 75% on the year after announcing it raised more than $20 billion for its largest ever real estate fund. That fund already made its first purchase, nearly $19 billion worth of U.S. industrial properties. Blackstone manages more than $150 billion in real estate assets. So just how big could this latest play get? More specifically, can the stock go higher from here? You've been on this for a while. Yeah,
2: we've been, we've been talking about this for a while, and I've said I don't know what's happening, and I still don't know what's happening. I'm not necessarily sure that uh, thing you just talked about now, the real estate, is the reason why. With that said, the stock has been a monster, so clearly something's going on. Valuation, expensive. Price to book, expensive. All the metrics you look at say you got to sell this name, I still think there's further room to the upside.
1: I mean, that's a crazy move. It's a crazy (laughs) move,
3: but we've also had a crazy move in in yield. So in this environment, Blackstone's going to do very well. The one interesting thing I thought today, J.P. Morgan had a note out on traditional asset managers, and they looked at, like, Ben, Franklin Resources, B.E.N., saying they've gotten cheaper than they have in a long time. So I would look at those areas.
5: But the difference here is is that Blackstone is the best in class, number one alternative asset class player in the world, which means they can charge much higher management fees. And in fact, they're going to see basis point accretion on margin of 100 basis points a year, at least in the current environment. They raised a record $45 billion in the second quarter, and the third quarter has been better from a liquidity environment. So everything we've all said, in this environment, it's very Blackstone friendly. Uh, the valuation has to change, just like for equities. If anything, you'd have more sensitive, in an alternative asset manager in this environment, and therefore your multiple should expand that much more. I've
4: recognized the stock's gone 42 to 52 since June. That's not lost on me, but the chart's fantastic. And it still yields something like 4%. I think you get any hint of weakness back to the high 40s, you want to step in and buy. It's almost the anti-WeWork trade. Also, look at Brookfield. Brookfield, very similar company, very similar chart. I think there's a message there. The yield there is still important, and the chart's good.
5: And, and some of these big IPOs, who do you think were the first in? I mean, you know, guys like Blackstone have been seeing exits in a bunch of deals. Maybe not, you know, I, I don't even know about WeWork, and, and, which is obviously not a great story right now. But for the, the early-stage private equity funds that were involved in, in Angel, Series A, Series B, <clears throat> excuse me, it's been a great environment, and I, I think that's part of why they're doing so well here.
1: All right, coming up, Aurora Cannabis up in smoke again today. (coughs) The Cannabis Giants chairman says investors have nothing to worry about. We will explain. Plus, options traders are betting that one athleisure darling is going to run higher. We'll tell you the name. Much more fast money straight ahead. Delivering Alpha, the most important investor summit nine years running. Strategy from leading alpha generators. Direct access
0: to policymakers and government leaders. On September 19th, see who's calling the shots now. Go to DeliveringAlpha.com to attend this year's blockbuster event.
5: You will come away with ideas that you can put to work immediately.
0: Plus, special guest Vice President Mike Pence talks economy and trade war impact. Reserve your spot now at DeliveringAlpha.com.
1: Take a check on shares of Aurora Cannabis, uh, closing the day down more than 9 percent after reporting earnings last night. Earlier this afternoon, I got a chance to speak to Aurora Cannabis' chairman, Michael Singer, and I pressed Mm. him on an issue that uh, a lot of people on Wall Street are concerned about, the need for capital. Take a listen
0: some
5: point you know in the future as we continue to grow our business internationally we believe there may be a need for future capital um, because we're going to need to continue to expand build facilities elsewhere around the world so that is a a future uh you know um idea for us so that there's at some point we believe that may be true i don't think we have the need to do so today Uh um and and obviously we're planning to continue to grow our business with the existing capital that we have
1: It is an idea for the future which doesn't necessarily allay concerns that this is uh, going to, you know, not going to happen.
5: Although the big Canadian LPs have had a much easier road to capital markets than sure. the U.S. players. And in fact, they've raised a lot more capital because they can even list on these markets here and they could trade here. Aurora also just sold their uh, stake. They had a 10 percent stake they had in, in the organic Dutchman, yeah. uh, raised 85 million last week. Uh, look, the, the bottom line in these numbers, the most disturbing part about it is they gave guidance a month ago. Uh, and what missed, they said today, OK, granted, it wasn't their core business. Their core cannabis business was fine and actually hit the numbers, but it was their ancillary business. But but why not report that a month ago the big problem with the industry right now is 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 really a level of sophistication in terms of guidance engaging your business uh, the other problem here is these guys talked about volatility in the earnings cycle going forward and the industry doesn't want to hear that so you know <laughs> Yes, a record quarter in terms of Canada and and the best kind of core production out of Canada of any of the big players. They should be proud, but this doesn't change the things that are hanging over the industry.
1: And there are a lot of things that are going to be happening in the back half of the year. I mean, Canada goes legal on edibles and vaping, right? So there are a lot of products that they need to market around. They need to ramp up in terms of production, a.k.a. spending. Um, and yes. they already said SGNA is going to go up to 9% from 1% in the last quarter. The,
5: the, the, things that you should look forward to in the second half of the year. So cannabis 2.0 in Canada means that actually different format, um, products, edibles, um, d- you know, different, uh, you know, more higher margin products are coming through. And let's be clear, um, Canopy, Aurora, they are very well positioned for 2.0 and that's exciting. But in terms of cash costs, um, you know, they got a little better this quarter. Let's see where they go in the half. Yeah.
3: Well, I mean, at $5, I think I'd be a buyer of this. I'd give that a shot for Aurora, right? I mean, it's bounced off that several times over the last couple of years. You're talking about cash call in the future. I would take a shot at around 5 bucks.
4: I can't endorse it. I, I buy charts, not companies, not ideas, not themes, and they're bad charts. Um, whether it's Canopy, whether it's Aurora, whether it's Tilray. What's so
1: bad about that chart, Chris?
4: The uh, trend is down, right? Uh, it's hard for me to say the bottoms or the bases are being put in place mm-hmm. on these yet. Now, I can't tell you what six months is going to look Although like that right same
5: chart has, has basically found a bottom and bounced off it last week, and a lot of people were, were citing that. And even people that followed marks and other kind of technical indicators were calling me saying, this is the bottom. So you, you don't see any of that.
4: You know, we could have made that call five, six, seven, eight times over the last 18 months here, So I think we need to say the bar is higher to call the lows in these stocks. I'm not there yet.
2: If you're scared of the pure play cannabis, though, constantly brands down today, I know, but you know 14% or so EPS growth, I don't think it's expensive at 20 times, it's had a nice move, that's where you get the tail I think in the cannabis STZ. It's a better chart too.
1: Still ahead, that's our very own Jim Cramer, take a look with CrowdStrike CEO George Kurtz, he'll give us his take on the IPO market, that's tonight 6pm Eastern Time, you're live at Times Square in New York City, much more Fast Money straight ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of Lululemon surging higher today. The stock is now up more than 11 percent over the last month. Options traders are betting the athleisure darling can stretch its post-earnings gains a little bit further. Nice. Brian <laughs> <laughs> Sullins <laughs> in Chicago with the action. Hey, Brian.
8: Hey, Melissa. Yeah, Lululemon was active today, and when you look at it, calls outpacing puts two to one here. Normally, calls and puts they're about equal with each other, so it's interesting that we see this upside call activity going on. Specifically, what's crazy, strikes trading tomorrow, expiring tomorrow, the September 200 strike, traded for about $2.23. That was the biggest traded size there. Traded 3,700 when I was looking at it. By the end of the day, 4,700 of these calls had trade. So people betting on the upside here. I think when you look at the option traders, though, the stock, like you said, Melissa, up already tremendously since earnings that you'd look at here saying, can I use stock replacement strategies? Maybe use calls instead of buying the stock here. When you're looking at a trend channel here over the last six months or so, it's trading near the top of that range right now. I've got to be very cautious going in and just outlaying and buying stock. So I think you see these call buyers coming in, taking more shots that there'll be some more upside here. And, you know, when you take a look at it, Melissa, uh, Mike Co outlined a trade on Lulu last week on your show on Options Action. I love that trade. If you see Lululemon dip below 200, that's a trade I'd look to get into. Check that out online.
1: All right, Brian, thanks for that. Brian Sutton in Chicago with the action. I don't want to hear about people's underwear, what they buy, and what they. It's
2: part of the story,
1: because, Melissa.
5: Yeah. No, but but she's right, and this has been happening over the last couple of days. Every guys. time it's so I think look, can we just have so a proper? I'm going to go to Tim. Let's talk about Lululemon in terms and of the you. multiple, um, which is which is very difficult, which is quite stretched. But I do think you have a case here where people are looking at the growth of the company. It's being priced as a growth stock. In fact, that's what UBS, who upgraded the stock today from 190 to 215, put in there and said it deserves a higher multiple. Um, look, who needs emerging markets in Bitcoin when this stock over the last ten years has gone from three bucks to you know, 180? I think what's notable about the
4: price action really all year, the big up days have also had big volume, right? So the stock is still being accumulated here. I think the question is, can this translate to Nike? Nike's been sideways since February. Mm -hmm. Can Nike finally get in on the act? Is that the next way to play this without buying an overbought Lululemon? Oh,
1: so that brings us to a would you rather. Oh. Nike or Lulu? Much rather Lulu. Really? Much,
3: yeah, because I think they've got such a tailwind from the menswear division that I, I think people are pricing in the growth. I think that's going to be a much bigger tailwind than Nike's going so to get. So I would rather talk that. about the menswear. No, no, no,
1: no, no but but I was going to say on the just, pants. Like the pants. pants that exactly. DK hasn't gotten yet.
3: Well, you know they have a store across the street. Right, right across. The live, street. I'm, a, a,
2: I'm a Peter Lynch disciple. For you young viewers at home, you may want to Google that name on your Google machine, and you'll understand that you know I've actually been there. I've experienced Experienced it. Yes. I won't get into the granular detail of it, but then you look at the quarter comps were up 17 percent. Street was looking for 12. Yes, valuation is expensive, but they seem to continue to grow into that valuation.
1: So I'm going to throw it back to you because yes. you own Nike. Would
2: you rather? Rather?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, well, it's just a would you rather. It's just a would
2: you rather. So <laughs> Nike for sure. Um,
5: and okay. and I, I agree with the North American price action. I think the athleisure trade, which is what, which is what Lulu gets. Very caught up in is very much a place where Nike belongs. Nike's a much better
1: valuation. All right. For more options action, check out the full show tomorrow, 5:30 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up next, final trades. <laughs> President Trump making some comments about a potential deal with China. Let's get to Eamon Javers in DC, D.C. for the latest, Eamon.
2: Yeah, Melissa, that's right. The president is speaking right now on the South Lawn to reporters. According to wire uh, transcripts that we're getting in in real time, the president has just said two things that might be of interest to our audience. One is that he says he would rather get a whole deal done with China than an interim deal, but the president also telling reporters uh, that he guesses he would consider an interim trade deal with China. This goes back to this uh, debate from earlier in the day, reporting back and forth of whether or not an interim deal is under consideration uh, inside the White House, the uh, a senior administration official told us earlier today that it was absolutely not contemplated uh, by the White House. Now the president saying he guesses he would consider it, but he prefers a full deal rather than an interim deal. Melissa.
1: Eamon, thank you. Eamon Javers with the latest there. Time for the final trades. Tim.
5: Happy birthday, Chris Verone. Boeing benefits from a China deal.
1: Chris Verone.
5: J.P. Morgan Long. BK.
3: GDX, you buy that one. Happy birthday Chris
1: Marone ExxonMobil gets you done
2: (laughs) Pop them out that
1: doesn't rust See you back here tomorrow at 5 Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now
0: This podcast is supported by FedEx Dear small and medium businesses No one wants happy customers more than you do